I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Henry David Thoreau. Hey friends, welcome back to Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. As many of you know, I am just a guy who is on a journey to live a more intentional life. I'm trying to be a better leader and I'm trying to maximize the time that I have on earth. And I so appreciate you joining me on this journey. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you being here today. I think the topic that I'm covering today is extremely important. In September of 2016, influential blogger and commentator Andrew Sullivan wrote a 7,000-word essay for New York Magazine titled, I Used to Be a Human Being. And its subtitle was alarming. In it, he said, an endless bombardment of news and gossip and images has rendered us manic information addicts. It broke me, and it might break you too. And since then, we've seen a number of different articles like this We've seen whistleblowers, we've seen researchers telling us that we have a collective problem, a collective problem with technology. It's not that technology itself is bad, it's just that somewhere in this barrage of smartphones and social media and digital toys, we seem to be losing something vital to who we are as humans. In a world of increasing connectivity, we seem to be more and more lonely. And in our gut, we have this feeling that all of this is not gonna end well. So today I'm excited to confront this important topic head on. It's important to me personally, as I'll talk about, and it's also important to us as a society. And it's especially important to us as parents, as grandparents, and as adults who are trying to guide and lead a new generation of children who will live in this world that we've created. Today I'm going to discuss our relationship with technology and honestly for many of us this is not really a relationship that we have with technology. If we're honest it's an addiction and I'll talk about what that means. And I believe our addiction to social media, smartphones, video games and everything in between is also our greatest threat to living an intentional life. Today I'm going to discuss the grave nature of the problem and how you and I can free ourselves from this increasingly problematic and highly addictive distraction. Now, a few things up front. There are two books that I really highly recommend on this topic. Both are written by a guy by the name of Cal Newport, great name. He's also a computer science professor at Georgetown. The first book is called Deep Work. Deep Work was written by Cal Newport about the importance of doing focused work professionally. Cal argued that at a time where deep work is increasingly rare, it's also increasingly in demand. And so those who could cultivate an ability to do focused work and do deep work and learn new things had a distinct market advantage. So that was more professionally focused. After writing deep work, Cal started to get a barrage of people saying, hey, Cal Newport, we appreciate the, the book that you wrote about our professional lives and how important it is to fight distraction professionally. The problem is, how do we get a handle on 
our personal life? How do we get a handle on the impact of technology in our personal life? And so there were so many requests for that type of material that Cal Newport wrote a second book called Digital Minimalism. I cannot recommend these two books enough. They're both great. They're both packed with great analysis on the topic, great examples, great studies, and very practical ways to fight back against these billion dollar industries that we're up against. Now, also let me say from the outset, like many of the topics that I cover on this podcast, I have not mastered this topic at all. In fact, I struggle with digital addiction just as much, if not more, you can ask my wife, as the next person. But I also desperately want to break free and by reading these books, I've really gained a lot of insight and I've been employing them and the good news is that I'm experiencing a breakthrough and I'll be able to share that with you today. Like many of you, I see the problem and I desperately want to regain my autonomy. Like a gambler with behavioral addiction, there's a part of me that loves, even craves the dopamine hit that comes from seeing that red button light up on Facebook. And that is by design as we'll discuss. But the better part of me, the part that longs to live an intentional life, that longs to take actions that are in line with my values, knows that something's wrong. How can I be spending time with the people that I love the most, my wife, my daughter, my parents, my best friends, and yet still feel this urge to check my phone? How can I be playing with my daughter at the playground, a precious moment that I know is fleeting and still for some reason I still feel this urge to check my phone? Why do I feel the urge to check Facebook first thing in the morning and right before I go to bed? Whenever I have downtime, why do I feel the urge to pull out my phone? When my wife and I are at dinner and she goes to the bathroom, why do I feel like I need to pull out my phone? When I'm in line waiting for something, why do I feel the need to fill that void by pulling out my phone? I don't like this about myself, and perhaps you can relate, but I have to acknowledge the problem because that's the first step. And here's the good news, is that I have found that as I have incorporated many of the strategies that I'll talk about today, I've regained my freedom. I've rediscovered the beauty of solitude. I've felt that constant urge to check my phone subside. I feel less distracted. I feel less mentally exhausted. I feel that I'm starting to rediscover the richness of real life and real conversation, not just the some imagined digital connection by clicking like. I feel like I'm finally back in control of my use of technology and not that technology is controlling me. So whether you're like me and you're looking for ways to improve your relationship with technology or you just want some strategies to help your friends, your children, or your family, I think today is gonna be well worth your time. Now first, let's talk about the problem. Technology is the new nicotine. Bill Mayer ends every episode of his HBO show, Real Time, with a monologue. The topics are typically political. But on May 12, 2017, Bill Mayer looked into the camera and he had a different message. He said the tycoons of social media have to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world and admit that they're tobacco farmers in t-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Because let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking. And Mayer's concern with social media was sparked by a 60-minute segment that had aired a month earlier. And in that segment, it's called Brain Hacking. It opens with Anderson Cooper, who's interviewing a former Google engineer turned whistleblower named Tristan Harris. And in that interview, Tristan holds up his phone and he says, this is like a slot machine. 
And Anderson Cooper asks, well, how is that a slot machine? And Tristan goes on to explain, well, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get? He explains there's a whole playbook of techniques that get used by technology companies to get you using the product for as long as possible. Cooper then asks, are they programming apps or are they programming people? And Tristan responds, they're programming people. There's always this narrative that technology is neutral and that it's up to us to choose how we use it. But he says, that's just not true. He says, it's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. And so then Bill Mayer cuts out of the interview and he quips, hmm, where have I heard this before? And he cuts to the Mike Wallace famous 1995 interview with Jeffrey Wigan, the whistleblower who confirmed for the world what most people already suspected, and that's that big tobacco engineered cigarettes to be more addictive. And Mayer concludes by saying, Philip Morris wanted your lungs and the app store wants your soul. Companies like Facebook and Twitter really are the new cigarette companies. They may have started with the noble goal to increase community and connection, but as they have grown and needed to turn more and more profits to satisfy shareholders, their goal is very simple, to consume more and more of our time and attention. They want us to be glued to their platform for more and more time. We are not the consumer, we are the revenue stream. And without our time and attention, they make no money. Now, many of us bought smartphones and we signed up for various social media platforms without fully knowing the effects that it would have on our lives. Ironically, many of the apps and services that we now use are beginning to undermine the very values that made them appealing in the first place. Cal Newport in his book says, we joined Facebook to stay in touch with friends across the country and we ended up unable to maintain uninterrupted conversation with a friend sitting across the table. Maybe you can relate, I know I can. I signed up for Facebook in 2004. At the time, it was called thefacebook.com and it required only a college email to sign up. I was a freshman in college and so it was the cool thing to do, so I signed up. I had no idea when I signed up that it would be so ingrained in my life 15 years later. And I think if I had known, I probably would have approached it a little bit differently. As a college freshman, my thought was probably pretty simple. Like, hey, is there some benefit I can gain from doing this? Yeah, it seemed cool. All my friends were doing it. Why not do it? All it takes is an email. But I had no idea that even though it was free, that it was gonna be costing me something far more valuable. It was gonna cost me my time. And there's nothing more valuable than our time, our life, our precious life. It was gonna cost me my attention. It was gonna cost me my freedom. It was gonna cost me meaningful relationships. It was gonna cost me mental fatigue, increased anxiety, a loss of productivity, and honestly, regrets. Three years later in 2007, Apple released the iPhone. And at the time, the iPhone was not revolutionary in the way that we think about it today. The iPhone was simply revolutionary in that it combined for the first time the iPod and the cell phone into one device. So you no longer had to have your iPod for your music and your cell phone to make phone calls and text messages. It was all now one device. And that's what Steve Jobs did in his dramatic announcement. It was not pitched to us as this all-consuming box of chatter and distraction that would be ever present in our pocket and in our life. And I remember I was one of the first people of my friends to purchase an iPhone. But because many of my friends didn't have an iPhone, I started to notice how strong the pull was for me to check my phone and be on my phone. So after a year or so, I didn't like the way I was acting with my phone. 
And so I traded it in for a dumb phone, for a phone that really didn't have the type of technology that the iPhone did. And I started to sense I was regaining my freedom again. So I had a dumb phone for a year or so, but then I started to notice that all these smartphones were getting smarter and smarter. And all my friends were getting them. Now they had GPS on them. Many of the social media apps were now transitioning to being focused onto mobile app. And then I started to see how much better the cameras were and the convenience of being able to look something up whenever I needed it. So after a year or so of having a dumb foe, I jumped back onto the smartphone bandwagon. And I've had one ever since. About a month ago, I was in the car with my five-year-old daughter, Georgia. It was just her and I in the car, and she was trying to talk to me. But I had my phone in my hand, and I was looking at it. I don't even remember what I was looking at what seems so important. But my daughter got frustrated. She said, Daddy, I'm trying to talk to you. And frustrated, she said, Daddy, why are you always on your phone? And in that moment, it hit me. Why was I always on my phone? Why do I feel this urge to look at my phone when my precious daughter is trying to talk to me and get my attention? My five-year-old daughter was asking the right question, a question that I should be asking myself. Cal, why are you always on your phone? So I made up my mind. I said, I'm going to change. I'm going to discover why I'm doing this, and I'm going to make changes. I'm going to free myself from this urge to always check my phone and be on my phone. And as I've done the research, as I've gone through this discovery, I've learned that I am not alone. In fact, the average person will spend five years of their life on social media. Think about that. Think about what you could accomplish in five years. Imagine someone standing up at your funeral and saying, yeah, he lived a great life. He spent five of his precious years staring at a screen, scrolling through Facebook, watching YouTube videos. None of us want that. And yet, unfortunately, this number is on the rise. And although 60% of Americans think that they touch their phone only 100 times or less per day, the reality is the typical user taps, touches, or swipes their phone a staggering 2,617 times per day. 2,600 17 times per day people tap, touch, or swipe their phone. The average time spent on smartphones and tablets is 261 minutes a day. That's four hours and 33 minutes per day. 85% of smartphone users will check their device while speaking with friends and family. These are conversation disruptors. 80% of adults have their phones with them 22 hours a day. That's 80% of adults have their phones with them 22 hours a day. 92% of Americans agree that smartphone addiction is real. And those are some of the stats, but then there's there's, there's that gut feeling that many of us can relate to. Say you have some free time and you pull out your phone, you start scrolling for a few minutes, and then the next thing you know, you spent 30 minutes on your phone without ever intending to do so. These are precious minutes of your life Or you get home at the end of a long week, you feel drained, so you decide to throw in some Netflix or just browse on your phone. You think it's a great idea to do something mindless because after hours of being at work and spending that long day, you think that's the best thing to do. But then after hours of watching or browsing, you feel this sense of guilt. You feel more tired than you did when you started and you feel this sense that you could have done something better with that time. Or perhaps you've caught yourself with your spouse or your significant other. It's just the two of you, you're laying in bed, you're sitting on the couch, and instead of talking to one another or spending quality time together, you're just both staring at your screens. Instead of looking at each other and connecting, you have both chosen for some unknown reason to connect instead with the outside world, with the virtual digital world. 
And in that moment, your values are not in line with your actions. And you have this gut sense that you'd prefer things to be different. You'd prefer to really be conversing, just spending time together, even just staring at each other in quiet. And yet, you don't change. In fact, if you're like me, you plan to limit your child's access to a smartphone and to social media. But deep down, you know that you're not setting the best example. How can we as parents or grandparents guide our precious children through a world that's bombarded by technology when we don't have a good grasp on it ourselves? In a way, it's like an alcoholic trying to convince their children that they shouldn't drink. So how do we get here? How do we get addicted to technology? Well, addiction is often a scary word. Perhaps you think of a nasty drug or substance addiction, but addiction has a very careful definition. Addiction is a condition in which a person engages in use of a substance or in a behavior for which the rewarding effects provide a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite detrimental consequences. Now, as a lawyer, my job is to break down definitions. So as I read this definition, a few things really stand out to me, a few key terms. Number one, rewarding effects. These things have rewarding effects, these, either these substances or these behaviors. Compelling incentive. They create a compelling incentive to use them or to do them. It's repeated. So they have rewarding effects. It creates a compelling incentive, and it does so repeatedly. And then here's the key part of this. We do it despite detrimental consequences. That's how we know it's an addiction. Until recently, it was assumed that addiction was really only something that applied to alcohol or drugs. But now the DSM-5, the manual that covers these things, includes behavioral addictions as a diagnosable problem. There's a guy named Adam Alter who's done a ton of research in the area of technology and addiction. He's a business professor with a PhD from Princeton in social psychology, and he wrote a book, it's called Irresistible. And after studying the intersection of technology and addiction, there were two things that really became clear to him. Number one is that our technology, our new technology, they are particularly well-suited to foster behavior addiction. He'll admit these are moderate behavioral addictions when you compare them to things like drugs and cigarettes, which I think is good news. This means that when you break free from Facebook, for example, it's not likely to put you through some serious withdrawal symptoms. It's not likely to make you feel like you need to get up in the middle of the night and sneak out and go to some internet cafe. So that's number one, is that these things are well suited to foster behavioral addictions, these technologies. Number two is that these addictive properties are not accidents, that these things are carefully engineered design features that these technology companies put into these devices. Let that sink in for a minute. Billions and billions of dollars are being invested invested into carefully engineering your addiction. In Cal Newport, in his book, he focuses on two primary forces that tend to fuel our behavioral addiction that are being used in technology. Number one is intermittent positive reinforcement. And then number two, it taps into our drive for social approval. So for intermittent positive reinforcement, scientists have known since Michael Zaylor's famous pecking pigeon experience back in the 1970s that rewards that are delivered unpredictably are far more enticing than those that are delivered with a known pattern. There's something about unpredictability that releases more dopamine which is a key neurotransmitter for regulating our sense of craving. And the original Zaylor experiment had pigeons pecking at a button 
that unpredictably released a food pellet. And so Adam Alter says that the same basic behavior is replicated in the feedback buttons that have accompanied most social media posts since Facebook introduced the like icon back in 2009. Alter says that users are gambling each time they post on social media. Will I get likes? Will I get hearts? Will I get retweets? Or will I get no feedback at all? The former, one Facebook engineer calls bright dings of pseudo pleasure, and while the latter just makes you feel bad. Either way, the outcome is hard to predict, which the psychology of addiction teaches makes the activity of posting and checking maddeningly appealing. So social media isn't the only online activity that creates this unpredictable reinforcement. Many people experience this by visiting content websites. You visit it for a specific purpose. Let's say you go to check the weather and then 30 minutes later, you're clicking on the next link and the next link and the next link. It's often sparked by an unpredictable feedback loop. Most articles end in duds, but occasionally you'll land on a great article and that produces a strong emotion. So this level of unpredictability of pulling out your phone and you're not sure what's going to be on it. We love that. It releases more dopamine, so it makes it more addicting. Number two is the drive for social approval. Alter says that we're social beings who can't ever completely ignore what other people think about us. And social media feedback buttons fill this need for us. And if we get lots of likes and hearts and retweets, we feel approval. And on the other hand, a lack of positive feedback creates this sense of distress. It's serious business for our brains, so we feel this need to constantly monitor what's on our phone. And this need for social approval also explains a current trend in teenagers where they have to maintain these Snapchat streaks with their friends, where they want this long, unbroken daily communication on Snapchat. It makes them feel this satisfying feeling that their friendship is strong. It also explains, I think many of us have felt this, this urge to immediately answer an incoming text, even often at the most inappropriate or dangerous times, like when you're driving. And the technology industry is good at tapping into our drive for social approval. Social media, for example, can offer a rich stream of information about how much or how little your friends are thinking about you. For example, the tagging function on Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram, which now those programs make it so easy with facial recognition software that tagging is near automatic, but the person who's being tagged gets this socially satisfying notification that someone was thinking about them. And so all of these features tap into our desire for unpredictable and intermittent rewards and they tap into our strong urge and desire to have social feedback. And as Cal Newport says, we're in a lopsided arms race with billion dollar companies. Facebook, for example, is currently valued at $500 billion. And it may be easy to view compulsive use of technology as a result of some character flaw in you and I. And obviously we have some ownership of our use of technology, but we have to realize that this is also a result of a massively profitable business plan. I mean, many of us, when we signed up for these products, we didn't fully realize what we were getting into. We still often too naively think that we're just playing with fun gifts that are handed down from the nerd god. So here's the main takeaway for today. I'm gonna, now what I wanna do is I wanna transition from the problem and I wanna talk about solutions because there's good news. There's good news for those of us that are really willing to put in the work to get back our freedom and to get back our humanity. So if you've tuned me out for the last few minutes, I want you to hear this, please. I am not advocating that we be anti-technology. Instead, I am advocating that we step back from this naive approach that many of us have taken towards technology, that we clear our heads, that we feel the beauty of a technology detox. 
And then we reapproach technology in a very deliberate, intentional, and careful manner that is tightly connected with our deepest held values. Let me say that again. My recommendation is that we take a very real step back from technology, that we clear our heads, and that we feel the beauty of a technology detox. And then we reapproach technology in a very deliberate, intentional, and careful manner that is tightly connected with our deepest held values. Under this approach, it's not enough for us to naively adopt an app or a piece of technology because it provides some benefit. Instead, we have to carefully weigh this possible benefit against the cost of using the technology. And we deliberately decide whether the benefit is truly worth the cost. We ask ourselves whether this is truly the best way to gain the benefit. And then if we decide the technology is the best way to gain the benefit, we establish careful and deliberate operating procedures and parameters for how we'll use the technology. So I'm gonna get into some practical advice. I'm gonna give you about 10 key things that I think can help you, and these are things that I've adopted in my life, and I'll tell you how these have helped me in my life. So I'm gonna get you some practical advice for how to break free, how to regain your autonomy, how to regain your energy, and how to make your use of technology work for you instead of just working for the technology companies. Number one is to embrace digital minimalism. Embrace digital minimalism. Because of the all-consuming nature of technology, it's not enough for us just to make some minor tweaks and expect to break this cycle of addiction. As Cal Newport recommends, we have to move beyond tweaks and instead rebuild our relationship with technology from scratch, using our deeply held values as a foundation. And this is what this is, a philosophy. It's a philosophy of technology use that covers from the ground up which digital tools we allow into our life, for what reasons and under what constraints. Cal Newport defines digital minimalism as a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value. And then you happily miss out on everything else. People who adopt this approach perform really a cost-benefit analysis for every digital tool they use. If a new technology offers just a small benefit, then a minimalist will simply ignore it. And even if it offers something the minimalist values, it must pass a strict test. Is this the best way to use technology to support this value? And if the answer is no, the minimalist just moves on. And notice how this contrasts with, I think, the approach that a lot of us have taken or that a lot of us use. Most of us simply focus on the question of benefit. If it can add some benefit or some convenience, we just, in the inquiry there, we say, okay, it adds some benefit. It's some convenience, so I'm going to use it. But this approach flips it on its head. Minimalists don't mind missing out on small things, but what worries them the most is diminishing the larger thing that they already know for sure make a good life a good life. Digital minimalists also think of costs differently. They know that something may not cost money, but it may cost them something much more valuable, precious minutes of their life. In 1845, when Henry David Thoreau borrowed an ax and he walked into the woods near Walden Pond, he understood this idea of cost. He wrote the book Walden and discussed what he called new economies, which is the theory that builds on the following principle, that the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which it required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. 
this new economy's thinking offered a radical rethinking of the consumerist culture that began to emerge in Thoreau's time. It was a world focused purely on monetary outcomes. And if working one acre of land as a farmer earns you $1 in profit, and working 60 acres earns you $60, then you should, if at all possible, work the 60 acres because it produces strictly more money. But Thoreau's view of cost considers this math woefully incomplete as it leaves out the cost in life required to achieve the extra $59. Maintaining an active presence on Twitter, for example, might occasionally open up an interesting connection or expose you to an idea you hadn't heard before, but how much of your time and attention must be sacrificed to earn a small profit of occasional connections and new ideas. Assume that you use Twitter for 10 hours per week. Why not instead adapt a habit of attending an interesting talk every month and forcing yourself to chat with at least three people while you're there? Digital minimalists carefully scrutinize each digital tool using this holistic view of cost. Ask yourself, as Thoreau did, how much of this thing called life will this cost me? So how do you become a digital minimalist? Well, first, let's start with the process. Cal Newport recommends to start out a digital declutter. You go all in, you make it rapid. This process allows you to disconnect and see your habits more clearly. And studies have revealed that many of us don't realize how much time we're actually spending on our digital devices. Cal recommends a 30-day fast from all non-essential technology. Essential technology are tools that you must have for daily life, things like work email, text messages. I don't think you have to do this for 30 days, but I think the concept of pulling away is incredibly important. When I did this, I quickly realized how great it felt to regain control of my time and my attention. I truly felt this kind of weight lifted from my shoulders as I felt the clutter subside. It was almost like there were all these bubbles that were floating around in my head that someone came and popped, and all of a sudden it just felt quiet. I had no idea how truly distracted I was by my use of technology. Life seemed to slow down. I started to see things again with fresh eyes. Not only did I discover how much of an effect that these digital tools were having on me, but I also began to notice just how glued everyone around me was to their devices. So as you step away, simultaneously engage in other more rewarding activities. Call your mom, go for walks, learn something new, spend quality time with your family and friends. And then after enough time away, again, Cal suggests 30 days, reintroduce optional technology by putting each one through a lens of your values. Once you weigh the benefit with the cost, decide exactly how you're gonna use the technology. For example, I've decided that Facebook is useful to stay up to date with people. It's also useful for me to advertise my podcast. So I've deleted the app from my phone and I've committed to not accessing it on any of my mobile devices. And I only limit my time periods of checking Facebook when I'm on my laptop. And then just those steps alone have been liberating. It's amazing how much you check your Facebook or your social media apps when the app is on your phone. Also, I used to check the news all the time, but now I've committed to only reading quality articles during a very specific set time period. Often others will set curfews for their phone use. You can't use your phone after seven o'clock or eight o'clock. Others have removed web browsers from their phone. I have an iPhone and I've decided to remove all the web browsers on my phone like Google Chrome, Mozilla. Unfortunately, I haven't found a way to remove Safari, but that's another way to limit your browsing on your phone. So number one is discover and embrace digital minimalism. Number two is rediscover the beauty of solitude. This has been one of the most beautiful parts for me about the digital declutter process. 
In the book, Lead Yourself First, Raymond Kethledge and Michael Irwin define solitude as the subjective state in which your mind is free from input from other minds. Many people mistakenly associate solitude with isolation or physical separation. But solitude doesn't have to be a hike to a remote cabin in the woods miles from other human beings. Solitude is what's happening in your brain, not the environment around you. Again, I'll read that definition because I think it's so helpful. Solitude is the subjective state in which your mind is free from input from other mind. There's this quote that I love. It says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Ben Franklin said, I acknowledge solitude as an agreeable refreshment to a busy mind. There's something in us that we have this subconscious fear of solitude. We fear being left alone with our thoughts, with our problems. In a modern world, it's so easy to go long periods of time without ever simply sitting with your thoughts. We distract, we escape, we entertain, we do anything to avoid being alone with our thoughts. And technology makes this so easy. Doing this often ignores our problems. It hurts true intimacy with others and often with God. So I wanna encourage you to fully lean in to solitude. Let yourself get lost in your thoughts. It's so refreshing. It allows you to create, to think, to dream in a way that you simply cannot when you're allowing input from other people. The more I've been doing this, the less scary it becomes and the more I actually crave it. In fact, the other night I had trouble sleeping. Normally my first instinct would be to grab my phone and just start looking at my phone for a distraction. But instead I just sat there in the quiet. I just allowed myself to just sit in the silence and the darkness and just think. I allowed my brain to wonder. We used to wonder as children but now it's so hard just to wonder. Yesterday, I needed to rake the leaves in my yard. Typically, what I would do is I'd put my headphones in, I'd listen to a podcast or music, but I simply allowed myself just to get lost in my thoughts. And doing so allowed me to dream, it allowed me to create, to process life. Guys, I can't tell you enough how regaining the beauty of solitude has helped me. Not only that, but by regaining the beauty of solitude, it's also made me more apt to just sit with people and just talk to them without feeling the need to check my phone. Many of our country's most pivotal moments have come from leaders who intentionally pursued solitude. Abraham Lincoln pursued solitude at a place called the Soldier's Home during the Civil War. He was never truly alone as he always had companies of soldiers guarding him at all times, but he was alone with his thoughts. Martin Luther King became involved in the Montgomery bus boycotts kind of haphazardly, but after getting pushed into the movement, he spent a night in jail and he returned home to his wife and kids and he woke up in the middle of the night and he realized that it was time for him to clarify what he was all about. So he just sat alone with his thoughts, holding a cup of coffee at the kitchen table. He prayed and he reflected. He embraced the solitude that he needed to make sense of the demands that were being placed upon him. And in that moment, he found clarity that would give him courage for what was to come. King said, and it seemed that in that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth. And biographer David Garrow later described that this event may have been the most important night of King's life. When was the last time that you just sat with your thoughts without any outside input? We live in a world of solitude deprivation. And this is also a world where we have never experienced before. Think about it. For as long as humans have been on earth, there's never been a time 
except for probably up until the last 10 years where we've had this level of solitude deprivation. 10 years ago, it was inevitable that you were going to have moments with just your thoughts. And solitude brings us the ability to clarify hard problems, to regulate our emotions, to build moral courage, to strengthen our relationship. Honestly, I don't feel that we fully understand how this solitude deprivation is going to affect our world. One of the best ways to study this and to study the effects of solitude deprivation is to study young people that were born after 1995, the first group to enter their preteen years with access to smartphones, tablets, and persistent internet connectivity. And the statistics are not good. In fact, they're alarming. A 2015 study by Common Sense found that teenagers were consuming media, including text messages and social networks, nine hours per day on average. Seemingly overnight, the number of students seeking mental health counseling massively expanded. The standard mix of teenage issues of the past, things like homesickness, eating disorders, some depression, have now been dominated by something that used to be relatively rare, anxiety. For young people born between 1995 and 2012, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed. According to Jean Twinge, a psychology professor and one of the world's foremost experts on generational difference in American youth, it is not an exaggeration to describe this group as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And as a father, this breaks my heart to know that this is the world my daughter will have to navigate. We have to fight against solitude deprivation in our own lives if we ever want to lead our children and grandchildren as they navigate this new world of constant connectivity. We need solitude to thrive as human beings. And in recent years, without even realizing it, we've systematically reduced this crucial ingredient from our lives. As Cal Newport says, simply put, humans are not wired to be constantly wired. I think that as you disconnect, that you're going to love your reconnection with solitude. Next, I want to encourage you to choose, number three, choose real world connection over digital connection. Studies have shown that the more time that you spend on social media, the less time you will spend engaging in real human connection. The more you're on social media, the lonelier you become. In fact, someone in the highest quartile of social media use was three times more likely to be lonelier than someone in the lowest quartile. And in other words, we trade likes for phone calls. As we embrace digital minimalism and we rediscover the beauty of solitude, another effect that I've seen is a newfound willingness to pick up the phone and to make phone calls. I used to do this all the time. In fact, I used to have conversations with my friends and my family members for hours on the phone. But for some reason, over the past several years, I've struggled to want to pick up the phone. I've traded meaningful conversation over the phone and in person for just simply scrolling on social media platforms. And I don't have to convince you that real world conversations are more valuable and meaningful than connecting through social media. So if you're like me and you've been a heavy social media user and found phone calls harder to make, you may rediscover a love of true connection when you step away from your social media. Number four, pursue high quality leisure activities. As you're limiting your amount of time you're spending on technology, replace that with high quality leisure activities. In his book, Cal Newport uses examples from people that have reached financial independence early in life and have shifted their focus to these leisure activities. 
He encourages us to focus on things that are demanding over things that are passive. Use your skills to produce something valuable in the physical world, crafts, fixing something, building something. Engage in social activities intentionally where you connect with people. Contribute to society. Replace the time that you've been spending on social media to make an impact, to be intentional about that. Learning. I have a goal to read a book every two weeks. And the amount of time that I've now gained from being addicted to my phone is incredible. And then, of course, maybe these low-quality leisure activities, as Cal Newport says, things like Facebook, Netflix, video games. You can still do those. Just schedule them so they don't dominate your time so they don't just fill the void schedule them for specific periods of time next i want to encourage you number five delete social media apps from your phone i deleted my facebook i deleted my linkedin twitter i had tiktok even though i never used it it was kind of like the cool thing to do apparently so i deleted that delete all i encourage you delete all of your social media apps from your phone what it does is it makes that habitual checking so much harder and i have found now i check facebook really and, and linkedin are really the only two things I check from my laptop during specific periods of time. And it's amazing how it's cut down on my use of social media. I checked yesterday my screen time, and it's embarrassing to say this, my screen time from doing some of these tricks is debt was down yesterday three hours and 22 minutes. Three hours and 22 minutes of my life I got back yesterday because of these tricks. Number six, I wanna encourage you, forget your phone. Get in the habit of just leaving your phone or forgetting your phone. We used to live in a world where people didn't have phones all the time and we were fine. You're gonna be fine. I just wanna encourage you this past weekend, my parents were up and there were several times where I just left my phone. I just left my phone at home. My wife had her phone and I just left it. And it was incredible. I was able to focus, I was able to think, I was able to converse. And it tells those people you're with that they are the most important thing to you. So leave your phone at home, leave your phone in the car. When you get home from work, Leave your phone in your car and just go inside and spend time with your family or go inside and put your phone in a drawer. Turn it off. Get in the habit of just leaving your phone. Next, use the you do not disturb feature on your phone. It's awesome. Whenever you need to get some real quality deep work done or you just want to spend some quality time with a person, just simply put the do not disturb feature on your phone and that way that you get no notifications during that period of time. It's a great way, it's a great alternative just leaving your phone, just put do not disturb. Get in the habit of making those intentional decisions to limit the impact of technology on your conversations and on your time with real people. And then schedule times to batch these digital tools. Schedule times to get on Facebook if you wanna to continue to use Facebook. Schedule times to get on Instagram if you wanna to continue to use Instagram. Schedule times to watch Netflix if you wanna to continue to watch Netflix. I wanna encourage you to join the resistance movement, this attention resistance movement. There's actually a growing group of people. Many of you may have already started down this road or you've already done things, maybe unintentionally, of trying to limit your technology use, but there is a growing group of people in our country and in the world who are seeing the problems of technology and are, are resisting it. And then finally, I wanna encourage you to track your progress. The iPhone at least has this feature of screen time and it will show you how you use your time. Most people don't think that they're using their phone as much as they actually are. So I encourage you to use those functions on your phone, on your laptop. There's plenty of them out there to track the amount of time you're spending. So you get a true sense and then track your progress. It's been really neat for me to see, wow, I'm spending so much less time on my phone and it's encouraging. Not only do I feel the physical effects, I feel you know more energetic, I feel less fatigue, I feel less distraction, I feel happier, I feel more focus, all of those things, but it's also neat just to see, man, I'm spending objectively far less time on my phone. 
So, hey, I, I just want to encourage you, and I'm going to thank you guys for listening today. I want to give you some homework as I leave you today to help implement these principles. Number one, do a self-assessment of where you're at. If you have an iPhone, I already talked about it, you have that screen time function on your phone that will tell you how much time you're spending. Most people, again, think they're spending far less time on their phone than they actually are. And it's gonna break it down by application what you're doing on your phone. It also tells you how many times per day that you pick up your phone and what the first app is you look at when you pick up your phone. So that's number one, do a self-assessment. Look at yourself objectively. The best coaches ask questions to people, which sometimes can be frustrating so you, you pay for a coach and you come in and all they do is just ask you questions i want to encourage you to be your own coach step back from your life and look at your life objectively what advice would you give yourself about the technology use that you have imagine that you were your child how would you feel about the amount of technology that you're using next i want to encourage you to step away step away do a digital detox to clear your head and get a true sense of how it feels to step away. Cut out all optional apps and services. 30 days is what's recommended by Cal Newport, but I just encourage you to use whatever time you can, but make it set up front. Commit to it, a week, two weeks, 10 days, whatever it is, set a time to digitally detox from technology. And as you're detoxing, be intentional about pursuing more meaningful activities. Is it time to learn to play the guitar? Is it time to read more? Lean into solitude. Spend quality time with your loved ones. Feel the beauty of not being drawn to your phone. Experience the beauty of less mental fatigue and overwhelm. Set some goals for yourself of some things you want to accomplish. And then once you're sufficiently detoxed, be extremely intentional about what you allow back in. For each optional item that you're allowing back in, be very specific about how you will use it. If it's social media, when can you use it? For how long? On what device? For what purpose? If it's Netflix or video games, when can you use it? Can you use it while you're alone? Or do you need to do it when you're spending time? There was one person in the book they talked about where they made it a rule because they were spending so much time on Netflix that they could only watch Netflix with people to make it social because they were just sick and tired of spending hours and hours getting caught up on this binge watching of TV shows. So they made it something, they made a rule for themselves only watch it with other people. And finally, know that this is not a one-time exercise. This is something that requires constant attention and constant tweaking. And also know that I am on this journey with you. I am not someone who's speaking to you as someone who has figured all this out. I have made some significant progress, which I'm very excited about, I'm very happy. But I just wanna encourage you to reach out to me if you need some encouragement. We're, we're in this together, we're on this journey together, we're all trying to live a better and more intentional life together. So I just wanna encourage you that I'm here with you on this journey. If you've liked this podcast, if you've gotten something out of this, I just wanna encourage you to share it with other people. I, I, this is such an important topic to me. This is why I'm spending so much time on this topic today. I feel like it's very important to us as individuals. I feel like it's important to us as a society. So please do share this with people. If you have gotten something out of this, even if it's just certain segments, share them with, with other people. Also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, wherever you consume it, please subscribe so you continue to get new episodes as they come out. Also, I really appreciate all of those people that have taken the time to rate the podcast on iTunes or have given a written review. I think we have 50 four ratings on iTunes. And all that does is it just makes the, the podcast more accessible. So if you were to go to iTunes and type in leadership, for example, the more ratings it has, the more accessible it is to people and the more impact that this podcast can have. And that's my whole goal. It's not to make money. I'm not making any money. I'm actually paying money to do this. Um, it's just simply a desire to impact. 
So I want to leave you with this, that life is too short to spend five years of our lives on social media. Life is too short to be constantly distracted and miss out on real connection. Let's all collectively be human again. Life is short. Go make it count. Mm -hmm.